2 Samuel chapter number 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11. We'll read out of God's word. Just the first five verses is what we'll cover tonight. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. There was a story told a few years ago on ABC Nightly News about a very strange piece of art. It was a chair. And fixed to the chair was a shotgun that was loaded, and it was on a timer. That is, it would go off sometime, they say, in the next 100 years. So the shotgun could go off immediately. It could go off in a week, in 20 years, or 100 years. Well, the way the art was viewed was for someone to sit in a chair and stare right down the barrel of that shotgun for one minute. One person at a time for one minute. Now, you might think that nobody would want to see that piece of art and play that silly game of sitting in the chair in front of the shotgun loaded on a timer for one minute. But you'd be surprised to know that there were lines of people waiting to have their one minute in the chair. Signifying that there's some kind of fun, I guess, to be had in gambling on the idea that though the gun was certain to go off eventually, it wouldn't go off while they were sitting in the chair. What we essentially have in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is David's one minute in the chair. Only while he's in it, the gun goes off. And everything he knew, especially his family and his reputation, in some way was ruined by this moral failure. They say there's no failure as devastating as moral failure. I tend to agree with that, especially after studying 2 Samuel 11 for myself. This chapter is one of the saddest And heaviest chapters in all of the Bible. Certainly the saddest chapter of King David's life in my opinion. For the next several weeks we're going to be studying this moral failure in David's life. Tonight we're going to take a look at what I'll call the conception stage of his sin in the first five verses. The next week we're going to look at the covering stage of his sin in the rest of chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we're going to look at the confrontation stage of his sin. David's sin was conceived, then it was covered, 
than it was confronted. How are we today supposed to look at stories like this? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 tells us how. Now these things were our examples, these things, the Old Testament stories. To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. My prayer is that through studying the moral failure of David's life, perhaps the lowest time of his life, that we'll all learn how to escape moral failure in our own lives. That will understand from David's example how to avoid lusting after evil things ourselves. By the way, no one is above this. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. Doesn't matter if you've been saved for a week or saved for over 50 years. Doesn't matter if your marriage is as good as it's ever been or if it's on the rocks. Doesn't matter if you're single or single again. Every person in here can apply this message. Because sin plays no favorites. Calling the message tonight, the pathway to moral failure. What are the steps that David took that led to probably the biggest mistake he made as king of Israel? Well, there are four steps. To moral failure that I've observed in David's life. The first step he actually took takes place long before chapter 11. You can turn there, you can see it on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13. Here's the first step of moral failure. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. After he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. Here's the first step, desensitization. David had already taken the path of moral compromise by taking multiple wives. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know having multiple wives was culturally acceptable. But just because something is acceptable to the culture doesn't mean that it's acceptable to God. In fact, God had specifically commanded kings not to have multiple wives. You're going to lead my people. Stay away from multiple wives, he said. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Why? That his heart turned not away. For a long time, David was living in sort of socially permitted adultery. So it shouldn't surprise us that by the time chapter 11 came and he had the opportunity to do the same thing just outside the bounds of legal marriage that he did. In short, David's embrace of socially permitted sensuality desensitized him to the sin of an all-out adultery. On June 5th, 1976, the massive Tidon Dam in Idaho collapsed without warning. They said it sent millions of gallons of water surging into the Snake River Basin, causing a ton of destruction. Everyone was shocked in that area because it seemed to happen with the snap of a finger so quickly. But later they found out that it actually didn't happen quickly. They studied that beneath the waterline, a hidden fault had been gradually weakening the entire dam. It started small enough, just a tiny bit of erosion, but by the time it was detected, it was too late. 
The workers on the dam barely had time to run for their lives before they got swept away by the raging water. No one saw the little flaw for months and no one got hurt by it. But everyone saw the big collapse and many were hurt. And moral failure is like that. Are you listening? All we see is the moment when everything comes crashing down. But what we don't see are the cracks and the erosion below the surface that never got dealt with. Those are where the moral failures actually start. Can I say it this way? Moral failure begins with moral erosion and a moral erosion will eventually lead to a moral explosion. David's moral erosion began the moment he disregarded God's word about the women in his life. You've all heard the illustration about boiling a frog, haven't you? You don't just put the frog in boiling water. You put the frog in lukewarm water. Then you slowly turn up the heat until he dies. That's the picture of what happened in David's life. He accepted one wife at a time and slowly became desensitized to the fact that he was boiling and about to blow up. Big explosions begin with small erosions. Spouses don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to cheat on my husband today. I'm going to leave my wife today. It starts with something very small. And when they become desensitized to that, they move on to something a little bit bigger. Until they become desensitized to that and they finally get themselves in boiling water and they can't get out. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be a drug addict today. I'm going to be an alcoholic today. They start with going to a party and involving themselves in that lifestyle. And as they're slowly desensitized to the environment and to the company they're keeping, they try their first hit, they try their first drink, and eventually they're boiling and they can't stop. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to go bankrupt today. It usually starts with a few impulsive financial decisions. Most of the time when we're young, just a few purchases that, that we really can't afford and we can't sustain, then, then just a couple of credit cards, then a couple payday loans, and slowly but surely we become desensitized to the danger of spending money that isn't ours. And eventually it catches up. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I think Christianity is a sham. I think the Bible is untrue. No, it starts by listening to an unbelieving friend. Or reading a book. Or listening to a podcast. Or watching a YouTube video. Then slowly disconnecting from church one service at a time. Then blaming the church. Then hating the church. And eventually eventually claiming God doesn't even exist. Do you get it? There's a moral erosion before there's a moral explosion. The dam doesn't just break suddenly, which tells me something so important. We better be careful about the little things we allow in our lives that Satan could use to slowly desensitize us to sin. There's a second step that David took to moral failure. It's found in a phrase in verse 1. Very last phrase as he sent everybody off to battle. Very last phrase of verse one, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Step number two is relaxation. 
I'm talking about David relaxing from the rigors and discipline, which has been such a regular part of his active life. We just got done studying chapter eight. My Bible labels chapter eight, David's conquest. One victory after another. We called it a kingdom catalog. It was just like his resume. Victory here, win here, victory here, win there. And then we read an unlikely phrase in chapter 11, David stays home. I began to think about it and study it. David was at midlife. He was about 50 years old. His military campaigns had been so successful that perhaps he didn't think it was necessary for him to personally go off to war any longer. And he had trained some men up. And so he gave this mopping up job to his military general, Joab. And he said, I'm going to, I'm just going to hang back this time. I've kind of earned this. Do you think it's any coincidence that temptation presented itself the exact time that David stayed home? We've all heard it said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And I believe that is true. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about resting. I think rest is biblical. I think rest is good. I think a day off is needed. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about boredom. I'm talking about inactivity. I'm talking about indecision and just all around apathy. See, the devil doesn't just know our weak spots. He knows our weak times. And one of the times when we're most susceptible to sin is when we're too relaxed. When we're too idle. When we're neglecting our God-given duties. I don't think it's any coincidence that most addictions begin during teenage and college years. Because instead of getting a job, instead of getting some responsibilities, young people get hooked on some of this stuff because they're bored. And parents today, I'll kindly tell you, we don't help our kids out because oftentimes we allow them too much idle time. Put them to work. Get them doing something. The same is true in our marriage. Did you know it's a lot harder for Satan to get a hold of a marriage when both spouses are putting all of their energy into their marriage? It's when they get into maintenance mode because life gets busy. It's when they get lazy about developing their relationship that temptation gets a real grip in a spouse's life. I even think about one of the most basic necessities of life like sleep and rest. Can I I just be practical? Be careful about staying up hours after your family goes to sleep. Because you're weakening your mind and giving yourself another window of time when there's nobody to keep you accountable for what you're doing. You're walking on the king's roof. What's the point? Here it is. We start doing what we shouldn't be doing when we stop doing what we should be doing. Relaxation often invites temptation into our life. And can I say this? It is much easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. I want you to hear that again. It's a lot easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. And if you know temptation comes strongest when you're idle, then avoid being idle. Avoid it. Stay away from the king's roof. Because once you get yourself in those situations, now you have to do something superhuman and that is resist the urge of sin. And that is, that is 
Without the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. But I have found that human beings just are, are nearly incapable. Once we get ourselves so thick into sin to resist it, we ought to avoid being too relaxed at the front end. This is how moral failure happens. David was desensitized and then he was too relaxed. And then we see step number three, fixation. Sensitization, relaxation, fixation. Verse two. And it came to pass in an evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now I want to make some things clear. David's problem was not that he went onto his roof. This was common in this day. During warm days, they would go to the roof to get some fresh air. Plus, if you're the king, you have the best view in the entire city. It's quite relaxing. It's probably something David did often. May I also say this, David's problem wasn't even that he saw a woman bathing immodestly on her roof. I don't think David had an iPhone to text Bathsheba and tell me what, hey, tell me what time you're going to be out there bathing. But the narrator does take time to describe Bathsheba as very beautiful to look upon to show us the kind of temptation David was dealing with. So in that moment, it's important to understand that David wasn't wrong to be on his roof or to see Bathsheba bathing. David was wrong in that he didn't stop looking. David is wrong in that he stayed on his roof. David's look became a stare. And that stare became a thought. And that thought became an infatuation that he couldn't let go of. So you know what he did? He inquired of the woman. That's what the next verse says. The idea is that he sent someone, probably a trusted servant, to get details on her, to try and and arrange a meetup. Now when he told his servant to go and see who the naked woman on the roof was, the servant wasn't dumb. David wasn't saying, go get the naked woman so we can play checkers. The servant knew what David was asking. He knew that David was interested in a sexual relationship with this woman, which is why he answered David the way he did. You got to get this. Look at verse three. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, it's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see the words I emphasize? The servant tried to dissuade him from doing this by reminding him that Bathsheba was the daughter of another man. The wife to another man. This should have been a blow to David's conscience. This should have reminded David that Bathsheba didn't belong to him. That she wasn't an object to use for his pleasure. She was a daughter and a wife. And I found this to be true. Sexual sin almost always objectifies someone. They become an object of your pleasure and you forget quickly that you're dealing with someone's life. Usually multiple people's lives. This is someone's mother. This is someone's daughter, someone's wife or someone's future wife. You're not just enjoying someone's body. You're tampering with their soul. You're potentially sabotaging the the, the lives of multiple layers of people. But David was too fixated on his sin to see any of that. And it happens to us as well. 
When a wrong desire takes over our mind, you know what we'll do? We'll begin to deny any warnings from a messenger of God. We won't, they'll just go right over our head. God sends a parent, catches you in an act of disobedience. They give you a lecture. But all you see is an overprotective, overbearing mom or dad. God sends a testimony of someone else who, who's been down the road that you're traveling and they warn you of where it's going to end up. But all you see is just another judgmental Christian. God sends a preacher with a message that gives you a wake up call. But all that's going on in your mind, the entire sermon are the rationalizations for why it's okay for you to do what you want. Why you're the one exception to the Bible's rule. The Bible gives you a spouse that voices their concern over the choices you're making or the attitude in which you're carrying. But all you hear is a nagging wife or a jealous husband who's overreacting or just doesn't understand you. Do you know what God's doing when he sends these messengers into our lives? He's doing what he promised to do in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's giving us a way of escape. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. It feels hard in the moment. It feels overbearing in the moment. It feels nagging in the moment. It even feels untrue in the moment. But it very well might be God in his grace chasing you down and putting a stop sign in front of you. Or maybe I should say an escape door. But when we're fixated, we forget about God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this observation. When lust takes control, God loses all reality. Satan's plan is not to fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. What a world of wisdom in that statement. When we're in the grip of lust, and it doesn't have to be sexual lust. It can be be desiring anything that we shouldn't be desiring. When we are in the grip of that, fixated on that, the reality of God fades. The longer King David looked, the less real God became to him. Which tells me that God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. And not only was his awareness of God diminished, hear me, David lost awareness of who he himself was. His holy call, his frailty, the certain consequences of his sin. Listen, this is what lust does. It's done it a million of times. Why do you think it won't do that to you? Bonhoeffer continues. The lust thus arouses, envelops the mind and the will in deepest darkness. It's here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there's one command. Flee. Flee youthful lust. Flee worldly temptation. If you're feeling under pressure on the verge of something and emotion is dwelling up within you, what does the Bible say? Run. Why? No human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. It's easier to avoid temptation at the front end than to resist it in the middle of it. If you feel something welling up inside of you, don't hang around. Get off your phone immediately. Get off the computer immediately. Turn the TV off immediately. Walk away from their desk immediately. And don't go back there for a while. 
Quit looking immediately. Quit listening immediately. Quit talking immediately. Flee. Run. Get out of there. Your purity depends on it. Joseph was caught in, in, in Potiphar's wife's hands, literally. And he knew he could not avoid this temptation any longer. So the Bible says he fled. He ran so fast that he ran out of his garment. But David stayed. And David fixated. Which tells me that when you are in the grips of your lust, you have one of two choices. You can flee or you can fixate. And whichever one you choose will determine the next step of your life. And it's the, it's the most heartbreaking one. It's the consequence. Step number four is degeneration. First, verses four and five. David ignored this one who reminded him of who Bathsheba was. So he sent messengers, took her. She came in unto him and he lay with her. She's purified from her uncleanness and she returned into her house. And maybe there's a space of 30 days or so, I don't know. But the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Narrator, it just very cut. Do you feel how cold it is? Do you see that in the text? It's just raw. It's like headline, just one little headline, just so brief, so to the point. They did it and it was over and now they got to pay for it. You get it? David sent for Bathsheba. She came to his house. They slept together. It just so happened to be at the time in which she was most fertile. This is what that phrase means for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she got pregnant. Can you imagine how David felt when he heard those words? I am with child. Those are words that bring joy to the married couple who's been trying to have a child. But those same words bring fear to the one outside of marriage who were only trying to have some fun. Even the secular world understands this. In an article written in the Reader's Digest titled this, Six Myths About Extramarital Affairs. Here's the fourth myth. You ready? The fourth myth is this. Affairs are fun. The article pointed out that at first it's very exciting and pleasurable, but it quickly fades. They said in about three to six months, the glow wears off and the real world starts to intrude. And hear me, church, for David, the real world intruded about a month later. When a messenger handed him a sealed note, he opened it and read, I am pregnant. Yours truly, Bathsheba. What was fun is now miserable. That's what you call degeneration. A slow erosion that eventually leads to a big explosion. In our next sermon, we'll talk about David's next step. What he did with this news. But I think this is a good place to end and to make some application for our lives. Three statements of warning and one statement of hope. Statement number one. Sin can destroy anyone's life. Be humble. Please be humble. Please be humble. 
Men, be humble. Women, be humble. Teenagers, be humble. King David was the covenant king. The one to whom God said, my seed is going to come through you, the Messiah. The son of David, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, will come through you. You get the promise. Wherever you go, I'll preserve you. You are a man after my own heart. And if King David can fall, it is screaming at us who are more frail than him. We can fall too. To the person in here who thinks you're strong, take heed lest ye fall. Humble yourselves every day under the mighty hand of God so that you can get his grace to fight sin. And be humble, be humble, be humble when someone who loves you suspects sin in your life and confronts you about it. I'm not saying they'll have it right all the time. That's okay. Nobody's intuition is infallible. But just be thankful that they had the courage to come to you anyway. I'm not saying they'll say it right every time, but stay humble. I'm not saying you'll want to hear it, but stay humble. Number two, sin never just happens. Be aware. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he will devour the one that is too relaxed. Be aware of what you let your eyes see. Be aware of what you let your ears hear. You might think that everything's okay. But the truth could be this. You're desensitized right now. Some of the things you watch and listen to and read. It was a blow to your conscience a year ago. But it's not anymore. Be aware. It's easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. So be aware of those temptation points in your life. They might involve a person. They might involve a place. They might involve a device. They might involve a season of the year. Statement three. Sin grows. Be aggressive. An old preacher said, be killing sin or it will kill you. And I'll add to that, kill sin while it's small. Detect small erosions and deal with them immediately so that they don't blow you up. I am am weary of seeing sin's effect on people's lives. I'm burdened tonight. 
people I pray for every week. Just take sin so flippantly, don't even see it as a reality. Because they didn't take care of it when it was small. It grew, it got larger. Because they refused to kill it when God confronted them about it the first time. Don't men that can't say no to pornography because at 16 years old, they kept looking. Statement number four, sin, this is the statement of hope, it's been defeated. Rejoice. You know, King David was meant to foreshadow King Jesus. When he gets it right, we get a glimpse of the true king. When he gets it wrong, we yearn for a better king. And thankfully, a better king, the son of David, King Jesus, came. Somebody say amen. And he did what David could never do. He lived a sinlessly perfect life. He paid the price for our sin that we still commit. Then God raised him from the grave to emphatically defeat our sin. I don't know about you, church, but I resonate with the Apostle Paul who admitted this. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He said, for the good that I I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Do you get this? He said, now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And boom, he gives the hope. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we wrestle with the sin in our lives, we should confess it tonight. We should repent of it tonight. And we should commit with God's help to fight it this week. Then you know what we do? We find hope and help in King Jesus. Our better king. Listen, he's defeated our sin, buried our sin, and forgiven our sin. So quit hanging on to it. Because the better king has already taken good care of it. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?